0: This is I Choose Life News and Views, sponsored by Indiana Right to Life and Right to Life of Northeast Indiana. Committed to defending innocent human life for all people of all ages. Your hosts are Kathy Humbarger, Abigail Lorenzen, and Scott Kump.
1: Welcome to I Choose Life News and Views. I'm Kathy Humbarger. I'm Abigail Lorenzen. And I'm Scott Kump. I Choose Life News and Views is produced by Bot Radio Network in Fort Wayne in
0: cooperation with Indiana Right to Life as well as Right to Life of Northeast Indiana.
1: Joining us on the phone today is Dr. David Prinnis, who is the Vice President and Research Director for the Charlotte Lozier Institute, which is a national pro life institute that does research, especially in the medical realm. Dr. Prentice is also a professor of molecular genetics at the John Paul II Institute, Catholic University of America. So he has an amazing background, especially, obviously, in genetics, but especially in in embryology research and looking at embryonic stem cell research and that kind of thing. So this kind of person that I could sit with all day, I think, and talk to but he's on with us for just this program today. Thanks so much for joining us, Dr. Prentice.
0: It's great to be with you. Thanks for having me on.
1: Can you tell us a little bit more about yourself? I think that you have a lot probably packed into the bio <laughs> that people would find interesting as far as giving them a little background about maybe how you got started in the pro-life movement, you know, that tends to sure. suck people in, or it's not every day that you find someone who's in molecular genetics?
0: <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, I'm a Kansan, born and bred, grew up uh, in Kansas, went to the University of Kansas, My science training was in biochemistry and cell biology and embryology, and I actually worked at Los Alamos National Labs for a couple of years, Oh, was a professor at University of Texas in uh, Houston, the med school there, and then spent almost 20 years at Indiana State University with a joint appointment with IU Med School. Oh, there you go. There you go. There's my Indiana connection. So uh, we're also part Hoosier. (laughs) Well,
1: and you have to have one to come on our radio program. We don't just interview anybody. Well, I wanted to make
0: sure I got my creds in there. Yeah. But as far as getting started in the pro-life movement, I I think it's more a matter of when did you kind of find your voice? Well, actually, while I was at Indiana State and IU Med, I, I kept getting questions. I had a friend who actually got elected to Congress and he would call up, Can you tell me in two minutes everything I need to know about yes. cancer research? Yeah. I was obviously the only scientist that he knew. But you know, I kept answering these questions and especially from lots of pro life groups because about that time was when the whole thing about stem cells, embryonic versus adult mm-hmm. stem cells and cloning and all this and And I was teaching that science already to my classes of grad students and undergrads and so on. But, uh, you know, trying to help people focus on what was real and what was not because, and it's still the case, but definitely back then, this is over 20 years ago, people were making all these claims about embryonic stem cells. And I had one U.S. senator tell me that they were going to cure all known maladies. And I had to correct him. And help him focus on not just the science, which wasn't there to support embryonic, but also the ethics. Where do you get embryonic stem cells? You kill a young human being and you take her cells and you put them in the dish to do experiments. So uh, more and more, it was a matter of explaining science to people, especially in terms of focusing them on the life issues involved in, whether it was stem cells or cloning or genetic engineering or fetal tissue and all those various things. And I spent about 10 years working for Family Research Council then in, in Washington, D.C., and then uh, about six years ago moved over to the Charlotte Lozier Institute. We're the geeks, you might say, that provide the science and statistics background on, on life issues, especially for Susan B. Anthony List.
1: I love it. I love all of that reading research. Give me give me the numbers. Give me the sources. Show me what you got. I love that stuff.
0: Yeah. I mean, and the, the interesting thing you might say is that when you look at the real facts, it supports the pro-life position. Whether we're talking about stem cells and all of this kind of esoteric, uh, geeky science, whether we're talking about survival of very preterm babies, where they were talking about when you can actually start to feel pain in the womb, all of these various things. And we also like to point out all of the ethical alternatives, the Mm -hmm. prenatal surgeries that can be done, the adult stem cells, obviously, uh, that have now treated over 2 million people
1: around the world compared to
0: Zippo. For embryonic and mm-hmm. fetal tissue, frankly. So it just keeps coming back to that point that the ethical science is the best science.
1: Yeah. I have you on today to talk about COVID vaccines, um, <laughs> yeah. which is interests me less, but is important. Um, but why do you think it is then that with so many successes using adult stem cells, that mm-hmm. people are so stuck on using embryonic stem cells that I mean, just tons and tons of money and even federal money is being poured into that still.
0: Well, and and you've just named one of the reasons. As long as the money keeps flowing, they're going to keep working in that area. In fact, that's where a lot of the hype came from, that we're going to cure all of these people. I mean, California has put billions of their state taxpayer dollars on embryonic stem cells and cloning and and still come up with nothing. But as long as that money keeps flowing, that's where some of these people are. Now, I think there are a few of folks who honestly believe that maybe they can make it work. Maybe they can come up with something. And, of course, there's some ego involved in there with that as well. But and I think there's also ideology. They just don't see that this little human being has any moral worth. For a lot of them, all of us are simply experimental resources.
1: Yeah. I was talking um, with a high school student at one of our local Christian schools the other day after a presentation that I did, and he was really interested in how do we help preterm babies? How do we Mm. help, or babies who are in an ectopic pregnancy and needing to be removed. And now we can't help them because there's no way to reimplant them. And he was, his mind just sort of fastened onto this idea of how do we help these babies? And it was really interesting because in talking to him, he kept coming back to, well, can't we do X, Y, or Z? And it had to do with embryonic cells in some way, shape, or form, or can't we do experiments or that kind of thing? And I had to keep telling him, You can't sacrifice those lives in hope to save others. Right. And it was so interesting to watch him try to wrap his mind around it. And I think part of the struggle is that he lives in a culture that doesn't even try to think that way anymore. It's so utilitarian. And so to see him sort of go, and he even said, well, what if, you know, if we can cure all of these lives and there's only one life that's been sacrificed? I said, you can't do that. You cannot sacrifice a life knowingly, unless no, it's your own, no. right? But so it was interesting, that ethics conversation from a high school student who so wanted to help, but you got to find an ethical means of doing it.
0: Yeah. And, and they're there. And people become very creative coming up with ethical alternatives and different ways to do, whether it's an experiment or or to try and treat a patient and so on. I mean... In terms of stem cells, there's another good example. Dr. Yamanaka, a Japanese scientist, back in 2006, came up with a way to take just an ordinary cell, like an ordinary skin cell, and turn it into a stem cell that looked very much and acted like an embryonic stem cell. But nobody had to die to get that cell. He won the Nobel Prize for it. But when he was asked, well you know, why did you even come up with this? And he said, you know, I went to a a colleague's lab and I looked through the microscope at this human embryo and I thought there's such a small difference between that embryo and my daughter's. We can't sacrifice a single life for this. There's got to be another way, a better way. And there was. Mm -hmm. It's just a matter of trying to put your mind to that particular point of view.
1: Yeah, humans are hugely inventive. Oh yeah. And I think this too when we talk about abortion in the cases of an adverse prenatal diagnosis that mm-hmm. if the child is diagnosed with something in the womb that abortion is presented as the solution but when you're doing that you lose all the necessity to find an actual cure yeah. for that problem. And so when you take right when you take the necessity out of the situation either because of an ethics thing like an embryonic stem cell research or while it's still an ethics thing, in the case of abortion, you lose the momentum to actually try to invent new ways to cure things.
0: Yeah. We develop then also this attitude that, well, unless this human being is up to my standards, why, they're discardable in the womb or, or not. But certainly uh, those who get a poor prenatal diagnosis, we have a group of our scholars at Charlotte Lozier Institute who've written an entire big review paper on all the various types of prenatal surgeries. You and your, your listeners are probably seen that picture of the little tiny hand yeah. grasping the surgeon's finger. They were doing this prenatal surgery on this little one uh, and uh, improved his life. Well, there are now thousands of little kids who were operated on in the womb for a huge number of treatments. They're starting to come up with adult stem cell treatments for kids still in the womb to try and treat different conditions, including genetic conditions. And it simply becomes a matter of reframing how we're looking at this in terms of, yeah, this is a human life. That's a human life made in the image of God, and she has value. He has value. We need to come up with ways to try and save that life, not
1: discarded. Certainly. Like I said, I could keep going on with you, Dr. Prentice, forever and ever amen on these kinds of things. I just find it so fascinating. But as far as dealing with an issue at hand and some exciting news Mm -hmm. as far as what's going on in our communities goes, there are COVID-19 vaccines coming out, um, being distributed. And I know of four off the top of my head that are sort of front runners, two of which... Uh, used the fetal cell lines in their vaccines, and two of which I believe did not. So I was hoping you could give us pro-lifers kind of the landscape of what those vaccines look like, what options we should be looking and asking for, and so we can sort of build on that. But why don't we start with the landscape of the vaccines here?
0: Sure. And and of course, we're all uh, anxious to see multiple vaccines
1: mm-hmm. against
0: COVID-19 come forward because that's really going to help us open things back up and not not be so worried about contact with other people. I mean, whether you're going to church, I mean, and, and it's hard not to hug anybody yeah. now, but the vaccines are coming. And, you know, this is actually another great triumph of creative science. Normally, start from the initial concept of a vaccine to something finally you're going to inject in my arm takes, oh, eight to 10 years. Well, it's been eight to 10 months since they first started. And the Operation Warp Speed, I mean, I think they tried to convey that, you know, we're trying to move things faster without sacrificing the safety and the efficacy. Right. But uh, there are eight particular vaccines in that Warp Speed program. They're actually, uh, last I checked this morning, over 200 different potential vaccines that people are working on.
1: Which is great, competition-wise. it, wise. Yeah, it competition. is.
0: It gives great competition. You can look maybe down the road, and we've got some imminent here, but maybe there's going to be something even better
1: mm-hmm. coming
0: down the road as well uh, in case we have to get revaccinated and so on. So I think there's There's a lot of great ethical creativity going on, but there are some, as you mentioned, that they're controversial. So if we just look at the warp speed candidates and we look at uh, the four that are closest to maybe being distributed and start to inject people, uh, there's one by, it's a joint venture by the company Pfizer and a company from Germany called BioNTech. There's another one from a company called Moderna, a third one from a company called AstraZeneca, and another one that's from Johnson & Johnson, but it's also a collaborative effort with another small company.
1: Janssen, right?
0: Yeah, Janssen. And and so these actually represent two different ways to make a vaccine. If I could back up just a step, there used to be only one way to make a vaccine against a viral infection. Viruses have to live inside cells, and so you would take a, a petri dish full of cells, you'd put the virus in it, the virus infects those cells, it grows, you get out lots of virus, you then kill it or weaken it in some way, and you get whole virus injected into your arm. Now, it's, it's killed, it's not going to cause the infection, but the point being that you had to grow it in cells, and you've got the whole virus your immune system is looking at to start making antibodies against it. Well, there are now five ways to make a viral vaccine. You've got that one traditional way, but then there's some newer kind of molecular biology ways to make it. And those four we mentioned use a couple of these new different ways. And let me start with the Pfizer and the Moderna ones, because those are on the cusp of being approved by the FDA. They've gone through all the testing. They're going to get a very in-depth review to make sure that they are safe and that they actually work. But probably within a week or two, we're going to see both of these being distributed and, and start to vaccinate high-risk population and healthcare. Both of these vaccines are what are called mRNA vaccines. mRNA or messenger RNA is a, is a little molecule that our cells use to essentially, it's a recipe on how to make a protein.
1: This is Not high school biology.
0: Itself. Yeah. We're going to give you a little bio 101 here. <laughs> uh, but, you know, in our cells, we've got our DNA, our genome, uh, and so on that has all of those recipes, the entire range of things that the cell needs. When a cell wants to make one thing, it makes a copy of the genome in just that area and that copy, that message is the mRNA. And again, it's a recipe on how to make a protein. It's not the protein itself. It then, the cell takes that mRNA to the machinery in the cell that reads that recipe, if you will, and uses those instructions to actually make the protein. The Pfizer and Moderna vaccines are mRNA. It's the instructions just to make one protein called the spike protein. Interesting. That's present on that coronavirus. You've probably seen the pictures that they draw, and you've Mm -hmm. got all those little knobby things projecting on the surface. That's the spike protein. Okay. And so you're not going to get the whole virus injected. You're not even going to get the protein injected. For these two, what you get is the instruction, the recipe. They make that actually in the lab. Uh, they designed the sequence on the computer based on what the whole gene sequence was for the virus. They picked just that one. And why would you say they would pick just spike protein? Well, again, if you look at those pictures people show, that's the face that our immune system would see for the virus.
1: Interesting. It's like
0: putting the face on the wanted poster.
1: Yeah, that is fascinating.
0: And so you give our cells that little instruction, and they encase it in a little, it's called a lipid nanoparticle, which is a fancy way of saying <laughs> a tiny oil droplet, and that's to protect that little recipe RNA and help it get into our cells, and then our cells take that recipe they make the viral spike protein within our own cells and then show it to our immune system. So our immune system sees that wanted poster, says, okay, I'm going to make antibodies, I'll be ready if that virus ever shows up. Both the Pfizer and Moderna are they are almost identical. There are slight differences, but they're made the same way. There are no cells involved in their production. It's all made with enzymes in a test tube. The AstraZeneca and the Johnson & Johnson or Janssen vaccines are made, it's called a a viral vector. Think about it as like a a mail carrier carrying a message. And instead of using a little oil droplet, what they are going to carry, uh, these vectors are actually, it's kind of like a ghost virus. And so you encapsulate the message you want to deliver, but it's in this sort of ghost virus.
1: Okay. Well,
0: like we said, any virus has to be made in cell. Right. Well, so they make their, their little carrier viruses in cells, and that then leads us to the big problem ethically, and that's they use abortion-derived cell lines. You don't have to do that. There are cells, and, and have been for decades, that can do the same thing, but there's a particular cell line. It has a lineage, in other words, from decades ago called H-E-K-293. And over the decades, scientists have gotten used to using this particular cell to make these sorts of viral carrier and to make protein and so on. That then becomes the, the problem. It's obviously controversial. There are a significant number of Americans who are not at ease with having something like that, an abortion-derived cell line, in that production flow to finally get the vaccine that you're going to be injected with. You know, and and realizing, as a lot of people will tend to point out, that it's been decades since that abortion, and, you know, you're, you're distant in time and space from it, but, you know, there's still a connection. Right, You can draw that line back there. So it becomes a matter of then people kind of have to think about, well, what vaccine should I take? And you know, what most bioethicists try to emphasize is if there's one that doesn't uh, cause a crisis of conscience for you, an ethical alternative or something like these that are made even without cells, you know, you probably ought to go for that one first.
1: Right. So in our case, the Pfizer vaccine or the Moderna vaccine.
0: Those two are okay in terms of their production. Yeah. Now, what if they're not available? Or, you know, your state didn't get enough doses, and, and but it's got doses of one of these others. A lot of the analysis becomes, you know, it's a matter of you have to weigh with your own conscience, with uh, your family, and you think about your health, your family's health, your public health in terms of uh, whether you could take that vaccine in good conscience. Most bioethicists would say, you know, if there's no other alternative and it's a grave matter, I mean, death and severe disease is certainly a grave matter, Right. that you could go ahead and, and use that particular vaccine. But you should also kind of feel like, well, I need to let my doctor and let these pharmaceutical companies know that, hey, uh, we really would like you to come up with something other.
1: Right. And that's it's, the main piece in my brain when I think about this, yeah. is that the American public and the pro-life American public standing up and, and repeatedly asking for the one, you're know, saying, I want yeah. Moderna and I, or I want Pfizer because they don't use fetal cell lines. Can I right. get one of those?
0: Yeah. And personally, I would feel it my duty that this is what I want. I, I need to speak up about that. I mean, there there are lots of people and certainly lots of scientists who don't even realize that there there is for many Americans a, a problem in terms of that connection to the abortion.
1: Yeah, for sure. We get questions about it all the time in the office. Yeah.
0: Now, I, I do want to mention that for... Even the Pfizer and the Moderna vaccines, as well as a whole bunch of the others that are in the pipeline, sometimes what they have done is do some confirmatory tests, kind of like you've got this thing coming down the assembly line. It's been produced already. It's in the box. It's ready to to ship or whatever. Well, I'm going to take a little bit out, and I'm just curious. Did I really get what I designed, what I planned and produced? And they have done some, not all, but some tests using that abortion-derived cell line. So
1: they're still tapping into it, even though they didn't use it to create the vaccine. And,
0: and, you know, a lot of people will say, well, but you're another step removed because the product uh, you've already produced, and that's what's going into my arm. But, you know, this is off to the side. Their scientists decided to do that. I mean, at some point, our hope is that people would move away from any use of those cells, whether it's in the actual production of what goes into my arm or, you know, even if it's something off the side, kind of, yeah, I've got to do this test so I can publish my scientific paper or whatever. People need to be aware of these things and consider them. You know, production, I think, is the key here in terms of were the cells used to actually make that vaccine that's going to go into my arm. What we try to do is we're not going to tell you you how to decide one way or the other. There there are people who are concerned at different levels, and people need to do that kind of analysis. So what Charlotte Lozier Institute is trying to do is just make sure you've got all the accurate information. We've got a chart of just the warp speed uh, vaccines as well as a whole host of others in a separate chart with a lot more detail but to try and tell you from what we could tell, looking at the actual scientific papers, whether they use those cells in the production or whether they might have used them in the testing, other information like that, because you need to make an informed choice. You need to know, is this a licit alternative? Is this one that maybe gives me a little concern And then look at the availability, look at what your faith tradition says, you now talk with your family and make your own choice.
1: Thank you. If people want to look up those resources, Dr. Punis, where should they go?
0: Go to our website and it's Lozier Institute, L-O-Z-I-E-R Institute dot O-R-G. We will be putting a little button on the very front page of our website so people can just one click, get to all this information. But until it's there, if you just type vaccine into the search box up at the top right, you'll be able to find a whole bunch of things. We've got not just these charts and and the accurate, up-to-date information about all the vaccines. We've got a whole article that kind of explains these new high-tech molecular ways to make vaccines and what is involved in all of that. And... Uh, so, you know, I just encourage people to go learn all the facts, make sure you've got the accurate information, and then think about partaking of these vaccines. I mean, it, it is important. We don't want to steer anybody away from a necessary vaccine, but you need to have the accurate information as you make those decisions.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And not just you yourself read about it, but also share it with other people because they also need to know, right? If we're concerned about it, there's a high chance that our neighbor is as well. That's right. With vaccines too, the more pressure that comes from the public for these vaccination companies to not use the fetal cell lines, the better. They're never going to change it if there's no public pressure. So we need to keep laying that on. Well, thanks, Dr. Prentice, for joining us. I really appreciate the breakdown here. And then people, right, again, can go to lozier, L-O-Z-I-E-R, institute.org and search on vaccine. And that'll give them nice summaries and diagrams and all sorts of things to check out and to share. But excited to have the vaccine coming out and hoping that it it will help us out. So thanks for joining us, Dr. Prentice.
0: You're quite welcome. Thanks so much for spreading the information. You've been listening to I Choose Life News and Views. If you have questions about this program or if you'd like to support the fight for life, please call 260-471-1849 or go to IChooseLife.org because without the right to life, no other rights matter.